next generator motivation. And recall how the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, how Chinese in particular, looks at all sentient beings with the eyes of compassion. Seeing our plight, seeing our situation with more clarity than we see it ourselves. And not judging us in the least for being so confused. But rather due to having trained their minds strongly in compassion, these great beings look at us with understanding, with the compassion that wishes to aid us out of psychic existence so that we can really make use of our Buddha potential. So when we think of the great qualities of these holy beings, we really admire them. And we may even aspire to become like them. The best way to fill that aspiration is to generate the bodhicitta and make our minds similar to theirs in the sense of aspiring for full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So let's read verse 7 together. That was the verse that we discussed yesterday. I praise the compassion that focuses on sensing beings, that sees in their suffering aspect, overpowered by their ignorance, like a water wheel in the well of So the question arises at this point, before we go on to the next verse, is is just seeing the suffering of sentient beings, how they're like a a, uh, bucket in a well, is that just meditating on their suffering, is that sufficient for generating compassion? Why not? Hmm? You, could, you could be aware of their situation and not feel compassion for them. Okay, so you could be aware of their situation and not feel compassion for them. Like if for somebody who is a stranger, for example, somebody was an enemy, we might even rejoice. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so great compassion has an aspect of of uh, action to it. Very true. But what is it that's going to get us over this hump of being aware of their su- suffering and being apathetic or even rejoicing? Hmm? No, no. Knowing that there's a cause, what do you mean? 
knowing there's a cause for their suffering but, but we still have to you know what's going to get us to have some that's going to move us to action and not get us depressed to think that they're exactly like us and and they've been kind to us okay so we have to see them as lovable because if we don't see them as lovable then we either space out you know and ignore it or in the case of somebody we don't like we rejoice that they're suffering so seeing them as lovable is is something that's quite important now how do we see sentient beings as lovable I used to always wonder as a kid you know because at the holiday time you know um, what was it um, love and peace for everybody you know whatever you're supposed to write on your holiday cards <laughs> and everybody wrote it but I didn't see anybody who really felt it <laughs> you know and uh, so how you know how do we see something beings as kind especially when we have this judgmental mind that likes to pick faults at them you know, gotta see them as lovable somehow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's two ways to build up the understanding that sentient beings are, lo- are lovable. One is by what's called the seven points of cause and effect, and that is you know the whole thing of recognizing sentient things as our mother seeing the kindness of our mother wanting to repay it generating love and compassion the great resolve and then the seventh one the result is bodhicitta okay so that was a method that um, was taught by Maitreya and Asanda and Chandrakirti and Chandragoman and Kamalasila and then there's a second method called equalizing and exchanging self and others and that was the one taught by Shantideva primarily in his book Guide to Bodhisattva Story of Life so both of those ways are predicated on having equanimity in other words getting over the favoritism for the people we like the hostility for the people we don't like and the apathy for everybody else so one way to to get over what I call the yo-yo mind actually it's what Mariyashi called the yo-yo mind you know um, all these incredible different emotions we have for people one way is to recognize that these relationships of friend, enemy and stranger uh, are completely changeable I mean like that they could change yeah? somebody uh, today says something really nice and praises you they're my friend yeah? tomorrow they criticize you they're my enemy okay? somebody today you know, uh, steals from me but tomorrow I'm in a different situation and I really need their help and they come through and then I love them forever so our, our relationships are constantly changing so for that reason alone there's no good reason 
to be attached to friends, have hostility to enemies. Enemy meaning people we don't like, or people we feel threatened by, people we're afraid of. Uh, and uh, indifference towards everybody else. Makes no sense having those emotions because those relationships are going to change so dramatically in a very short time. Ever had that happen? Okay. Can you think of a dear friend that you didn't want to ever be separated from who now you don't mind being separated from at all? Or maybe you lost touch with? Okay. Can you think of somebody who you didn't like but then you met them in a different situation and you like them? May even help you? Yeah. I mean, our emotions towards other people are the ultimate example of being fickle. And this goes for the guys, too. You don't just say women are fickle. You know? Excuse me. But uh, we're all fickle together. <laughs> okay? And what is it that makes us change our mind so quickly about how we feel about other people? how they relate to us isn't it you know it's not who they are what qualities they have from their side it's what qualities they show to us and how they act towards us okay so if somebody's very nice to us they're a friend if they're nice to somebody who we don't like then we think they're an idiot like the other guy who we don't like right if somebody is nasty to us, we think they're an awful person. If they're nasty to our enemy, we like them. And it's all completely subjective, just dependent on how they relate to me. Me, who just coincidentally happens to be the center of the universe. Okay, and that's why, you know, judging everybody on the basis of how they relate to me is a valid way of judging them, isn't it? In fact, it's not judging at all, it is accurate perception. That's what we believe, isn't it? Yeah, when you sit in one of your meditations and you get really distracted, you know, because you remember something said that he said to you, who knows when, yeah, the person's not here at all now. Yeah, you're in this room, but boy, do you have clear visualization of what the altercation was with them 15 years ago. You know, incredible clear visualization. Every detail of what they said to you, of course, what you said to them, you don't remember so well. But anyway, it's all their fault, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> right? Yeah? Oh. So we have clues that they did this to me and then they said that. How dare they? And you know, our emotions start coming up. If you found that, you can get angry sitting here in this hall, outrageously angry, fumingly angry. You're ready to, you know, explode like now St. Helens. And the person you're mad at isn't even here. You notice that? You know? We don't need anybody to harm us. All we need to do is get into our thoughts. And we will get so angry. True or not true? 
we can make our you know we always say somebody else makes me angry you know they made me so mad they're not even in the room to make me mad who remembers it who's making me mad I'm making me mad but never mind that it's still their fault <laughs> anyway to blame somebody else and not take responsibility okay so when we come to realize this with the completely idiotic way that our mind functions then uh, we stop trusting the attachment the aversion and the apathy and instead we're able to focus more and more on really seeing that everybody wants to be happy just like us nobody wants to suffer just like us and instead what we cultivate is a equal hearted care and concern for everybody why? because they're just like us so remember they were all babies once remember didn't we do that a few days ago? was it this group? yeah we thought of you know people we don't like were babies yeah or when people we think are so attractive all of a sudden become 80 years old how people aren't what they are in this body at this time are they you know they aren't their body just you know imagine somebody in a different body and all of a sudden your whole feeling about them changes it's hard to be mad at George Bush when you see him as a cute little baby And we don't, I mean, face it, when we look at babies, we go, goo goo, gaga, they're so cute, you know? And this could be a future murderer that we're doing, that's too, you know? Well, we don't know, because we're just seeing this adorable little baby, because all babies are adorable, aren't they? they weren't nobody would take care of them so you know they better be adorable they're so adorable that we don't even care if they pee all over us we don't care we have to clean up their poo we don't mind at all because they're so cute even their poo is cute yeah (laughs) oh look my kid poo you know You know, when you have your first child, everything your child does is, you know, sacred and holy. That's all you see is is the beauty in this little being. Doesn't matter that they wake you up in the middle of the night or, you know, who knows what. That's why it's so confusing when they become teenagers. Yeah? Because you just have this unconditional love for them, and then all of a sudden they learn how to talk. And, you know, I'd be wondering why you taught them. <laughs> no, I'm joking, but um, you know, we're, it's possible to have this kind of unconditional love if we just let go of, you know, a lot of uh, our prejudice and these expectations that we have of others. Okay. So both those systems, either the seven points of cause and effect or the equalizing strength and self and others have predicated on this equanimity. The, in the seven points of, of cause and effect, the next step is seeing that all sentient beings have been our mother. 
Now, I remember when our lamas used to teach us this in Nepal, everybody kind of screwed up their face. My mother? You know? And the next one was, remember the kindness of your mother. And, you know, we were all from the 60s crew. Kindness of our mother? Kindness of our parents? They wanted to be in our more, you know? Um, so, uh, ever since Freud came along, you know, I'm so screwed up because my mother did this and my father did that. Uh, so the Lamas tried to deal with what, what to them was a completely mysterious reaction. <laughs> because in Asia, everybody loves their mother, even that, and it's not to say that there's no child abuse or whatever in Asia. I mean, of course there is. But people are brought up to think differently about their parents. And they can see past whatever, you know, negative things happen in the family. They can see past that to the incredible kindness that their parents showed them. We can't see past it. We get stuck. And so our lamas kind of tried to fudge the, the meditation a little bit and said, okay, you know, if you can't think about your parents being kind, think about whoever it was who took care of you when you were young being kind. Okay, so that worked for a while. But you know, I think it's really important for us to go back to our parents and see how our parents were kind. I think because that's a really important relationship in our life. And without making peace with our own parents, I think it's difficult to become a good parent oneself. Because if all you're modeling is hostility towards your own parents, then you're teaching your child how to feel about you. And if you fight with your siblings, that's what you're teaching your kids to do with each other. Because kids really learn by watching. And then also, just for our own peace of mind, I think it's, it's really important for us uh, to see the kindness of our parents, because they were tremendously kind. Yeah. I mean, they gave us this body. Yeah. They were the source of this precious human life. Without it, we wouldn't have the chance to practice the Dharma. Then they took care of us all the time when we were little. You know, feeding us in the middle of the night, cleaning our diapers, covering us when we were cold, uncovering us when we were hot. You know, we feel like such independent entities, don't we? What we were talking about yesterday, you know, here am I, I'm independent, I don't depend on nobody, folks. Huh? I mean, we were these little babies who couldn't take care of ourselves. And meanwhile, what were we doing? You know, we were putting players in our mouth and rat poison in our mouth. And, and I'm sure we all have stories, don't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we did when we were kids and what our parents had to do to save our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, quite literally save our lives, isn't it? You know, what we did. And then they gave us an education and put up with us all the time when we tried to think of excuses not to go to school. They had to teach us manners. I think that must be the worst part of being a parent when you're trying to teach your kids manners. Because kids are always saying, I want, give me. 
And our first words are, it's not fair. Isn't it? Yeah, isn't that the ultimate thing that child, children do to manipulate their parents? So-and-so got to do it. It's not fair. And mom and dad came in right away. Pretty smart. Okay. Um, so somehow our, our parents have to teach us to have manners and to restrain all of our wants and to deal with the frustration of not getting what we want and just even to say please and thank you and to realize that our actions affect others and they have to teach us all these things it's incredible what they put up with and we take it all for granted how many of us when, when we were kids and quarreling with our parents said I didn't ask to be born remember saying that? yeah we all said that yeah it's not my fault that I did this and this. I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> we were incredible, weren't we? You know what we said, what they had to, to listen to? And we never thanked them. Never. We just said, I want more. I want better. You know what I did on my birthday? I can't remember which birthday this was. But they had some birthday party for me. Yeah, and all my friends over and cake and the whole shebang and all these presents. And when it was all over, I went in this one corner of my room where I always go when I'm unhappy and I cried. Because it was going to be a whole year until I had another birthday. I didn't know about the suffering of change at that time. But this is an excellent example. You know, here my parents had done so much, and what do I do? I cry at the end of the day. You know, amazing. And then my mother, oh, she tells so many stories about this. I did. I don't need to repeat them here. <laughs> okay, she'll help you, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you really think of what our parents did to bring us up and how little we really appreciated it. Yeah. And, and our teachers, how much they, they put up with us in school. Some of you are school teachers, you know what you put up with. Okay. But we never said thank you to our teachers. Instead, we all timed it to drop our ruler together at 10 o'clock. Remember that? Yeah? Did you do that? Come on. That's up. Yeah. Much worse. <laughs> yeah, what did you do? Put <laughs> the English teacher's car on blocks. And then it wouldn't run, and so when she lets out of school three days in a row, we finally got off watch after three days missing class. Things like that. Things like that. Okay, so dropping our rules at 10 o'clock. Kids stuff up. So, you know, and yet these people, you know, just hung in there and kept teaching us, kept being kind to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So I think I think it is important for us to think about this kind of thing. And then you see uh, how much we're the recipient of our great kindness throughout our life. I think one of the most moving things, um, and before I tell you that, as I've mentioned before, I read to a lot of inmates. The inmates, you know, usually when they were kids had horrible relationships with their families. I mean, they write and tell me they were totally out of control. And most of them had alcohol and drug problems when they were young. Um, And broken families and all sorts of incredible stuff. And now when they're in prison, they love their mom so much because their mom is the one person who is stuck by them. Yeah, I mean they hated her. Never, well, supposedly hated her when they were younger. Fought crazy, and now, I mean, their relationship with their mother is so strong. It's really beautiful when they talk about it, because their mom is really the only person that's really stuck by them through all the things they did that landed them in prison. So they really love their moms. So, there's one book, if you have a chance to read it, it's by Jarvis Masters, it's a book called Finding Freedom. He's on death row in San Quentin. So, he wrote in the book about his childhood, he grew up in Oakland, and, you know, completely chaotic family, and his mother's boyfriends were, you know, chasing the kids around the house, and beating up his mother, and beating up the kids, and... From the time he was three years old, he had to hide under a, under a bed whenever you know fights broke out. I mean, just total chaos in his family. And I think his mother was on drugs. I can't remember very well. But you know, uh, that kind of that kind of background. Anyway, when he was already incarcerated, one day, you know, when the prison gets gets news that a family member of an inmate has died, then they have to break it to him and uh, you know so he was told that his mother had died and he went back to his cell and he was just devastated you know just sobbing and his son said to him hey I thought she you know was so abusive and mistreated you when you were a kid and you know why, why do you care about her and he said yeah but I really love her, you know. Why should I not love her? Okay, it would hurt me. She may have hurt me, but it would hurt me more to say I didn't love her. Because even in spite of everything that happened when he was growing up, he still saw his mother with eyes of love. Because he knew by that time that she was really doing the best that she could have for him given her karma, given her situation, given her capabilities at that time, and he didn't hold any of it against her. I was so touched when I read that, you know, how he didn't harbor any grudges or animosity for any of it. You know, I should look at the book again, but there was some statement about, you know, she may have hurt me, but it would hurt me more if I denied that I love her. There's something along that line. And uh, it just really touched me. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, recognizing 
that that kind of kindness that we've received and being able to look beyond whatever else happened and feel a sense of love and appreciation for what our parents did do for us. Because especially having a precious human life, bottom line is our parents gave us the body that's the basis of the precious human life. If we didn't have this body, we couldn't practice the Dharma. So no matter what else, they still did something really tremendous for us, didn't they? So then when we see the kindness of our mothers and we've seen that every being has been our mother at some time or another because we've had beginningless previous lives so there's been plenty of time for others to have been our parents you know then we okay so we see them as having been our parents we see their kindness and then automatically the feeling of wanting to repay that kindness comes because okay. I think this is kind of a non-amount human trait. When people are kind, automatically we want to do something for them, don't we? Yeah. So the wish to repay the kindness. And so because we've trained the mind to see that everybody has been our mother, at this point we're not just focusing on the mother of this life, but we're realizing that everybody that we have such a close intimate relationship with everybody in that way. There's a story about Lama Atisha, and whenever he saw any sentient being, you know, even the donkeys, he would say, hello, mom. <laughs> you know, because he has such a strong awareness that this being has been his mother and had therefore been kind to him. You know. And so they talk about it, like, you know, if you really feel close to, to your mother, let's say, and then you're separated from her, something happens and you're separated, and years later you're walking on the street downtown and you see some old lady and you're walking by and then you realize, that's my mother. I mean, imagine what that would feel like. Yeah, your mother who you love, you almost walk by and you realize, whoa, I haven't seen her in so long and there she is, she's sitting on the street, it's a beggar. Would you be apathetic? No way. Yeah, we wouldn't be apathetic at all. We would immediately help her. Doesn't matter, she's sick, she's dirty, she's drunk. Wouldn't matter any of that, we would help. So it's that kind of feeling of closeness, you know, that we're trying to cultivate. Uh, And that feeling of taking care of of other sentient beings because they've been kind to us. And so automatically that feeling of, of wanting to repay the kindness comes. Now, the question arises, seeing that, does that mean that we should do everything our parents want us to do? Okay. Seeing their kindness, wanting to repay it, is the way to repay it by doing everything they want us to do? No. No, it's not. Because sometimes sentient beings 
aren't very clear about what the cause of their happiness is. And people often want help doing things that are not good for them. Mm-hmm. Or they may want help doing the help in doing things that are not beneficial for us or for other living beings. Okay. So repaying the kindness that someone's shown us does not mean that we have to do what they want. Okay. We have the feeling of wanting to repay the kindness, but we can choose how to repay it. And we use our faculty of wisdom to choose the best way to repay the kindness of somebody. Okay? And this is very, very important because um, otherwise we get into this whole thing of I'm doing it to please somebody so that they won't disapprove of me, so that they'll like me, so that they'll think I'm good, and maybe then I can believe I'm good that it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. And, you know, we get all tangled up with our our crazy feelings of obligation, you know. And obligation doesn't have any wisdom mixed in with it. It's just basically attachment to approval and fear of disapproval. So what we're trying to cultivate here in our relationship with sentient beings is some faculty of wisdom where we try and think, you know, what is a wise way to repay the kindness of the people who have shown me kindness? Okay? And so we generate love, wanting them to be happy. We generate compassion, wanting them to be free of suffering. Okay? We develop the great resolve to do something, to act upon our love and compassion. And then we pause and we say, what is the best way to help them? Okay, if I'm not going to help them out of obligation and out of some kind of approval seeking, what is the best way to help somebody else? And we start checking around. Well, who gives the greatest help to others? Who gives the greatest help? Well, we might say Mother Teresa. Look what Mother Teresa does. Incredible help that she gives. But also the help she gives is just for this life. Yeah? She helps in this life, but they die, and the help doesn't really affect their future lives much. So if we look in the big picture, what does it really mean to help somebody? What does it really mean? Who's the one who gives us the greatest help? Hmm? Yeah, okay. So understanding the Dharma is what liberates us. And those people who guide us on the path and encourage us on the path, they show us the kindness that nobody else, even our parents, has shown us. Because that kindness shows us how to avoid the the causes of suffering and how to create the causes of happiness. So who is best able to show us the path to enlightenment? Okay, the Buddha. Isn't it? Okay. Enlightened beings are the ones who are most uh, most best equipped <laughs> to uh, to show us the path 
the path to enlightenment. Even our thoughts can't do that in the same way the Buddhists do. Even Bodhisattvas can't. Yeah, it's really Buddhist because they have their minds are completely clear of all defilement, and so they can they know our disposition, they know our interests, they know our tendencies, they know what we need to learn at a particular time and what the best way to teach us is. They know when to give us a kick in the pants and when to give us some chocolate cake at the end of the meditation session provided we last the whole session okay so you know they know what to do so if we really want to be at the greatest benefit to others okay, then we need to be able to teach them emptiness which means we need to have realized it directly ourselves we need to understand their dispositions and their tendencies which means that we need to purify our mind completely. We need to have, you know, an unmovable compassion that can put up with all the different money things that sentient beings to us, do to us while we're trying to help them. Okay, so we need tremendous compassion that isn't going to get frustrated, that isn't going to throw in the towel and say, forget you. You know, I mean, so if we really want to be a, a benefit, we need the wisdom, the skill, and the compassion that only an enlightened being has. So therefore, we want to become enlightened for the benefit of sentient beings. That's the Bodhicitta. Okay? Yeah. So this whole thing of cultivating compassion in Bodhicitta, it's not just seeing how sentient beings are buffeted around like a bucket in a well, but it's seeing them as lovable. You know? Because if we see them as lovable, then we want to engage and we want to help. And so we have to really train our mind. Seeing our friends as lovable is easy as long as they're nice to us. When our friends are in a bad mood and not nice to us, it's much harder to see them as lovable, isn't it? Okay. So we really need to get over this attachment, aversion, and apathy syndrome and see sentient beings in a big picture. Okay. And that's what seeing them as having been our mothers, seeing them as having been kind, does to us. Okay? takes us out of the appearance of this life. We've already kind of gotten over some of the gross uh, apathy, hostility, and attachment. And then we we really, you know, meditate on the kindness we see. And for many of us who've spent many years feeling sorry for ourselves because nobody loves us enough as we would like them to, okay, it can be a tremendous shock to realize how much other beings actually care and how much kindness we have received in our life because we spent years of our life meditating on how nobody loves us enough and nobody appreciates us enough how we're always rejected we never fit in we're always left out yeah sound familiar 
So for some of us to, to really get beyond that and see that all that stuff that we've been carrying around and all that self-image that we've been carrying around, you know, I'm the only one who doesn't fit in. You know that one? Then, you know, to really see the kindness of others is a complete shock to the system. And it's a very, very moving shock, one that we need to have, you know, because it jolts us to have a much more realistic take on other people um, and on uh, what our life has been about. And then you think of all the times you cried in the corner of your room after your birthday party. <laughs> and you say, self-centered thought sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, I really have to do something about this self-centered thought because it just really is too much. Then the way that Shanti Deva taught to see sentient beings as lovable is first of all equalizing self and others you know we all want happiness equally none of us want suffering and that's an equal tendency not just between friend enemy and stranger but also us and them and then you begin to see in Shanti Deva's technique that us and them is mere is merely labeled okay it's like this side of the the valley and the other side of the valley. When you're here, that is that side of the valley. When you're over there, that is this side of the valley. And this is that side of the valley. When you're looking out from this perspective, this is I and that's you. But when you're looking out from your perspective, that's I and this one's you. Yeah. It's just labels. It's just perspective. That's all. Okay? I, I and you is just what just depending on labels. Okay, like this and that side of that. Just depending on which perspective that you take. So then you practice changing the perspective. Okay. Well, first of all, before you do that, you see all the disadvantages of the self-centered thought and all the benefit that comes from cherishing others. And then you say, well, let's exchange that perspective. And so instead of saying I, when you refer to this one, you say you. And when you refer to the other people, you say I. And then you look back at your old self, okay, from the viewpoint of others. Okay. And when you say, I want happiness, since I has now been labeled on others, that's who wants happiness. And when you say, I want happiness, you're less important. The I is others, and the you who's less important is yourself. So you exchange those labels, I and others. And why not exchange them? Because for most of the world, it's exchange. I'm the only one who sees these aggregates as I. 
there's how many billions of human beings on this planet that see these particular aggregates as you? I mean, there's five billion plus sentient beings that see this body and mind as you, and thus as less important. There's only one that sees this body and mind as the center of the universe. That happens to be me. Okay. But if we want to be democratic about this whole thing, (laughs) you know, because we're champions of democracy, right? So who who is there more of? Yeah, am I the most important one, or am I less than? I'm less than. Okay. So self-centered thought has to you know take a back seat a little bit and calm down its ranting and raving. And actually, as our self-centered thought calms down and gets beaten up a little bit, we actually become happier. Because our self-centered thought makes us so miserable. So miserable. Okay? I mean, just just think about it. Even your own experience in, in your meditation, when you're sitting there, my back hurts, my knees hurt, my back hurts, my knees hurt, my head hurts, my back hurts, my knees hurt, my head hurts, my back hurts, my ear hurts, my little tongue. <laughs> when you're doing that mantra, <laughs> When you're doing that mantra, then are you happy? No. We're miserable. We're miserable. Okay? So just all this fussing around ourselves is just it it's crazy making. Yeah? And we're so incredibly sensitive. If somebody doesn't look at us right, oh, they're offended. You know, they don't smile at us. They don't greet us. They don't bow to us. They don't praise us. They don't give us a present. They forget our birthday. They don't return our phone calls. Or they do return our phone calls. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah? You know, the self-centered thought makes everything it takes everything so personally and makes us completely miserable and I always tell people in in retreat you know that we really need to trade problems and trade distractions because you can spend a whole retreat you know oh my relationship what's happening with my relationship this is a good one actually my relationship like you were saying my relationship if only I could get my relationship better it would be the end all the be all I'm working so hard but you know he does this and she does this and what about my relationship how is this going to work it was like this in the past and now in the future I don't know what it's going to be and they're acting so erratic and I'm acting so erratic and I don't I don't know what I feel anymore and I don't know what I feel anymore and what's going to happen and if we split up then what's going to happen and I don't know and I don't know if I'm going to be together or I don't know if I want to split up and oh you know this is just all so confusing okay so maybe you know what, what we need to do is just you give your relationship to somebody else in the room to worry about. 
your job is to worry about their relationship. Okay? So whenever you get distracted in meditation, you have to spend all that time worrying about their relationship. Okay? Because remember, it's not them anymore. It's it's I. It's you, you know. I and you have, have changed. So now when you say, you know, oh, my relationship, my relationship, it's somebody else's relationship. Because now, you know, we've changed places. Okay? And then you have to sit there and fret and worry about their relationship and what they do and what's happening. How long are you going to be distracted by that? Yeah, how long is that distraction going to last? Not very long, is it? Other people's relationships are pretty boring. Aren't they? They're so boring. You know, how long are you going to sit, sit there and, you know, worry about, oh, he said this, she said this, blah, 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 what's going to happen? It's so boring, you know, it can be an important problem. Okay? You know, and I really think we should do this. Just completely, you know, change the I and the you and worry about each other's relationships. Okay. So how about, actually, we should do this. How about everybody? Everybody tonight, you know, write out a few paragraphs about your, you know, your relationship problem. You know, take you off of some problem with some person that you're close to, okay? Write it out. Yeah, write the whole thing out. Don't put your name on it, you know. But write it out. Write out everything you're worried about. How confused you are. How traumatic this is. You know, everything you've been thinking in your meditation, it's not going to be that hard, you know. You write it all out, and then um, we're just going to bring in a pot and put them all in, the, in a pot. You know, fold them up, put them in a pot, and we're all going to draw out somebody else's relationship to worry about. And it'll be totally anonymous. Okay, yeah? Can you write about that problem that you're Okay. Okay. Is it a relationship with somebody else? A boss or a colleague? No? Okay. Then, yeah, you can write about some other problem. Okay. But when you write it up, I mean, you really have to be completely tell the whole story of how distressful this is. What, you know, and what it, it doesn't matter, you know, Choose whichever individual that, you know, your mind is focused on. You know, it doesn't have to be your partner. It could be your parent or your kid or your colleague or somebody like that. But whoever it is that your mind's spinning about as, you know, siblings, whatever, write the whole thing out, you know, to say what relationship that person is and how, what they do, how distressful it is and how you feel and how can you, you know, put the whole thing out there, okay? And write it legibly, please. Yeah. <laughs> and don't start crying and smoothing. <laughs> okay. 
in your meditation. You know, you have that other person's problem there, and every time you get distracted, you snap and you go, whoop, I don't worry about this person's problem. Okay? Yeah, you have to be really mindful and remember to worry about it. Okay? Yeah, so somebody who works in the kitchen bring a big pot in, right in the middle of the room. We'll put our problems in there. Yeah? What's the paper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just finish it before tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. You can stay up all night. <laughs> So this thing about seeing other sentient beings as lovable and exchanging self and others is very, very important. Very important. And and then when we do that, we see them as lovable, we see their suffering, yeah, based on our having seen our own dukkha, then great compassion arises. So remember, great compassion is not just for the ouch kind of suffering. You know, we're very conditioned at realizing the ouch suffering. Okay? But compassion is not just for that. We have to have compassion for all the people who look like they're happy. Okay? All the people that we're jealous of, who we think have something better than we do, or are better than us, or, you know, whoever we're jealous of, whoever we, we hate because we're so successful or, you know, whatever it is, we have to have compassion for those people too. Because remember, they not only have the ouch suffering, but they have the suffering of change and they have the, pervade, the all-pervading compounded suffering of just having the aggregates under the influence of afflictions and karma the aggregates being the body and mind so you know we really have to broaden our whole scope of compassion you know it's not just for people who are overtly suffering it's for all the people who look happy okay have to have compassion for all the people who look happy because like that they could be in the act suffering, couldn't they? Yeah. All the people who seem to have everything and a wonderful family life and a career and money and stability, how stable and secure is their life? Not very. Such teeny, teeny, teeny circumstances completely changes everything. Hmm? Here's the teeny, teeny surface. I know everything's very secure. It's predictable. We know what's going on. But you're sure somebody's not going to have a car accident today? Yeah. Teeny, blood clot. (laughs) Yeah. Any number of things. And then our whole life changes in a matter of seconds. So we have to look at those people who seem like they're happy and realize that they're actually really walking along the edge of the cliff and they don't even see it. 
and then from seeing. So they can't even prepare for it. They can't even do anything. They don't know the Dharma. They can't prepare their mind. They're walking along this cliff with, you know, change. And suddenly something changes like that. And they're totally unprepared. And so we've got to have compassion for those people. Now, not just looking at, at people who are overtly suffering, but look at the people who seem to have everything. 